Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. David Caesar is a multi-awarded television and film director and writer. As evidenced by his prolific output, David is an accomplished storyteller, making this discussion of his five a real pleasure. David, welcome to Five of My Life. Lovely to be here. Have you listened to any other episodes? I've listened to quite a few now, and I've enjoyed them very much. And, and any particular stories or guests stand out? Oh, well, the one with Rob was really interesting, and there was another one with a, a nurse who oh, yeah, uh, Mary. had, had a very interesting story. And, uh, yeah, a, a few I've, uh, I've, I've dipped my toe in. Well, listen, well, thank you for listening, mate. Um, this is all about... You, your choices, and your stories. Okay. And and we uh, start always with the film mm-hmm. choice of our guests. Yeah. And, oh, my Lord, you chose all that jazz, 1979. I adored watching that again. But tell me why you chose it and your story behind it. Well, I was just this bogan country boy growing up in the country in the late 70s, and I had a very good and supportive art teacher, very camp gay guy, uh, Mr McClelland. He was a lovely chap and he was very supportive, but I wasn't really sure where I fit into that world in terms of doing stuff like that at school. And I used to go out and there used to be a cinema in town, uh, the the wonderful uh, Maruya Fiesta, and whatever films were on there we used to go to see. And, And there was this run of films in the late 70s. I was like... 14, 15 or so. Um, so there's this run of films in the late 70s and there was Apocalypse Now and there was Gallipoli, I think, and there were, and then I remember seeing all that jazz and I went, oh, I, I really want to do that. <laughs> I, I, and especially I just remember there was a, the musical number in all that jazz where I think it's um, I Think I'm Gonna Die, I think is, I'm not sure what it's called because it's a riff on a, a an existing song. And I just was watching it and it goes for like 10 minutes and these women in these suits with veins all over them and and it's kind of I just I'm just like my jaw hit the floor and I went I want to do that I, went, I don't I don't know how I do that I want to do that <laughs> I just want to do that and uh, and it was just this turning point in my life and and from and I remember I think I was 15 and and I applied to uh, film school and, and like cuz I didn't know anything I thought well there's a film school in Sydney, and I'll, I'll go there. And I applied there, and they said, um, you're a little bit young, David. Usually you don't take people younger than 22. And I went, okay. So I just applied every single year. And so for the next five years, I kept applying, and eventually they said, okay, we'll just let you in. Okay, just stop applying, just come on. I, I love the fact that a film could have that dramatic an effect mm. on a human's life journey. So it literally, it's, it's not you saw lots of them. It goes, that film, and you go, mm. do you know what? I've seen... What I want to do. Well, most of the films I'd seen had been war movies with my dad. Um, and 
and I, I enjoyed them and they were what they were, but I didn't kind of notice until that film, I didn't notice that someone had kind of made it. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of like people doing it and someone had recorded people doing it. And I just went, oh, they're making choices and the camera's doing that and there's editing and there's choreography and there's lighting and camera and blew my mind. So the opening, probably seven minutes, probably the best seven minutes mm. on film anywhere. Mm. Just mm. When, he, when he's selecting the, 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 yeah. the, the backing dancers with the, with the opening song yeah, yeah. that everyone knows. Yeah. Absolutely sensational. There's a um, number of things uh, I'd love to chat to you about. The girlfriend story. Yeah. I just, I mean, she was a knockout. Erin Rankin. So, so, so the story mm. that, that, that I didn't know until I researched it in your honour is in real life, Bob Fosse, who directed it, who it's obviously based on, it's autobiographical, mm. he was a, a root rat mm. and he had a, a wife and a mistress and he was, you know, screwing all the showgirls, blah, blah, blah. But his girlfriend at the time was the actress mm. who plays the girlfriend in the film mm. and he made her audition. <laughs> <laughs> to play herself. Isn't that right? I've written a part. It's you. I'd like you to audition to be you. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, the, the other thing it made me think, because I, I watched this four days ago now, you couldn't make that film now. No. The protagonist is someone who can't keep it in his pants. Woe is me. I can't decide between blah, blah, blah. Whereas now you go, well, why are you making a film about Harvey Weinstein? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas it actually, it sort of does age well at the same time as going, but you couldn't do that now. Whereas no, some you films couldn't. you go, it doesn't age well, that's a disaster. Now you go, oh, that is of another time. It is, very much so. <laughs> in in your early days, the, the rock and roll that uh, Bob Fosse was obviously enjoying, um, up his nose and, and whatever, uh, did you have your wild years? You know what? I never really did. I've always been a very stubborn bastard about... Things and I remember, and there's a, like a scene in Mullet, actually, one of my films, where it's like, I bought you a beer, mate. That was like a thing that used to happen a lot. And I'm like, well, if I want to drink it, I'll, I'll decide, you know. And there's this kind of, dare I say it, Australian thing about sort of mateship culture where you need to fit in. And I was always, for no real reason other than I'm just a stubborn bastard, I'd go, well, I'm, I'm not going to drink then. And so I just stopped drinking for a few years. Just because, uh, and it was like that whole peer pressure thing. I would just get so, I just dig my heels in about it, and 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 also I've never been that great with feeling out of control. It always makes me feel a little bit, you know, nervous. Yeah, I, it's not that I didn't try drugs and stuff when I was younger, but it just never. I, I just went. I don't really like this. I am stunned that you mentioned that particular scene in Mullet. Because uh, I'm not making this up, mate. I watched that two days ago. Mm -hmm. And the scene, if my wife or anyone would ask me, what would you be the one that was most impactful, is that one, because mm. I haven't had a drink for 20 years, and I had to endure, you know, three or four years of morons going, just the one, go on, I've bought it for you, you're no fun, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And the appalling, unloving, cruel peer pressure mm. it's, it's like you, you, if you said to someone go on have a you know inject yourself with this smack go on have yeah. some smack you go well, that's outrageous you're going to mm. kill that bloke's you know that's that's terrible it's not just australian culture it's the same in uh, in america and england in my experience is you get some morons who mm. are supposed to be your friends who don't care for you at all mm. and, and that that scene was so well done it was so well done and ben mendelson he was so beautiful in that film mm. he had a look about him mm. and and in that scene particularly you just think god he he 
he was sort of like a, I don't know, James Deeney, I thought. Yeah, look, uh, well, I'm, it's no secret. I'm a huge fan of Ben. And when I was finishing film school, I got some money to make a short film. And Ben, who I think was 17 or 18, I got him to be in that back in, I don't know, this is early 90s. I had no money and he came up to Sydney and on the train, which is, you know, like a long way to do this like eight minute long film for me. And um, we were very close for quite a long time. He started out with Kylie Minogue on a show when he was about 13. And so he had a huge history of that. And then he had issues, you know, he had a different relationship to things to what I did. As a as a late teen and early twenties, so you know he's had he's had a lot lot of life experience. He's it's quite amazing to see him take on the world. Yeah, wonderful. Mm. Well, moving to your second choice on Five My Life, and this is incredibly relevant to the whole point of this podcast. I'm not sure. I'm that grateful that you chose it because I had to read the bloody thing. (laughs) Uh, um, But you chose Story by Robert (laughs) McGee. It is. 500 pages long, but about the substance, structure, style and principle of screenwriting. I can probably Mm. guess why you chose it, but tell us why you chose it. Well, I had, I I mean, the reason I I read it was because a friend of mine used to work for the Sydney Morning Herald and he said, would you interview this guy? And Ah. I go, I've never heard of him. And he go, oh, he does these seminars and he's just published this book and it's become like this thing. And I'd already made um, a few features and quite a few docos and quite a lot of television at that point. I was, I think, about 30 or something. Anyway, so I read it and it was kind of this thing that I've always had always had this kind of testy relationship to the film industry because in, in Australia in particular, there's this kind of weird, mystical thing with it. And everyone's looking for a new messiah who will come along and be blessed with sort of innate talent and they'll save us all and take us back to Khan and 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 I've kind of had this really weird relationship with that because that's kind of not the world I grew up in and I read this book and I went oh it's like a trade it's like it's like being a craftsperson an artisan and it, and it kind of was like a relief for me because I'd, I'd always felt uncomfortable with this idea of divine inspiration and, you know, like the, the idea comes to you in a flash of light and, or, or a drug-induced stupor or whatever it is. And, um, and I just liked the idea that it was like you get on with it and you do the work, you know, and you make it happen. And I went, I understand. I can, I can, I can see the place for me in the industry. And in a way, I kind of didn't before that. I always felt like on the outside of it. And so it was kind of like a turning point for me work-wise that I just went, okay, I can just be like a tradie director, you know, like I'm a, you know, high-vis, get behind the camera guy. I'm loving your choices, mate, because, I mean, they're so seminal in your life. Yeah. So so all that jazz, that's what I want to do. And then the story, ah, that's how you do it. It's a craft. Mm. So me reading it not being in your business, you go, wow, all the films he mentions and deconstructs and about the, you know, the protagonist's, you know, narrative arc, the challenge, the the resolution, the climate. You go, ah, it's not a rattling page turner if you're not a film filmmaker part of me reading it and this is really unfair um was thinking well who the bloody hell are you you're picking films that are good that have already been made and retrospectively and cleverly 
telling me why they're good. And mm-hmm. and I buy that and now I understand a bit more about the you know the narrative arc and X, Y, and Z. But what have you ever done? Mm. <laughs> As in I quite like, I don't know, Martin Scorsese to write this book or somebody. You know, anyway, yeah. so that's But but I think that the thing about him is he's kind of the raconteur. And I think he was actually an actor for a while and did just sort of like character roles and stuff back in the 70s and 80s. There was a whole lot of other stuff going around. There's this whole thing called the uh, Joseph Campbell wrote this thing about the hero's myth. And it's, it's like seven novels, uh, seven um, volumes that are like 800 pages each, uh, talking about myth and the, and the shared myths around the globe and it's incredibly hard work to go through and I know that that was an inspiration for Star Wars and whatever 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 this sort of structure the thing about this book is like it was in a language I could get yes I don't think it came up with anything new I just think he kind of got these other ideas that were in the ether and then made it digestible for a bogan like me you're being self-deprecating because I, I mm. reckon like like with many things I don't know learning how to draw or play chess or whatever else you go learn the basics that you might not have realised were there, as in there is a craft, there is that. Mm. Learn it and then make it innate and then forget it mm. and let your divine inspiration happen. Because yeah. if, if you... It's, it's like, you know, story by numbers might be a bit shit. Oh, and, and I, think, <laughs> I think that there's many, many a um, superhero movie that is that. Most movies exist in this formulaic world but i think they probably always did to an extent you know and i think that they were like well you need a happy ending and you need this and you need that and you need that so there was always some sort of formula I, anyway I, I think it's a lot more a bit too rigid now but like i kind of wish i'd known it earlier because one of the things i found interesting is i'd already made a film called idiot box and i thought it was going to be really popular but it was quite dark and my structure was very, like, had a really big second act and a tiny third act, which was, you know, according to the history of uh, filmmaking, it is problematic. And I can see that. I can, I can look at the film and I can go, oh, that's how the experience is the film, because it just sort of stops. And I went, oh, I can see why that is a thing for people, that they want to have the climax and then there's a resolution after that, an emotional resolution. My film just comes up to Ben Mendelsohn getting sh- well he gets shot and <laughs> and and that's the end uh, and there's no kind of afterthought or anything else or repercussions and I can see why that's problematic yeah but at the, but at the same time I, I like creative people like yourself being able to do stuff that doesn't fit in you know, my amateur opinion of Game of Thrones which I, I'm, I'm not a fan of almost the entire success in my amateur humble opinion is because they killed poor old Sean Bean mm. you go hold on that's not I've mm. watched this for a season and he's the bloke and you just killed him mm. that, because they ripped the rules up but again a bit like Picasso he could draw mm. wi- a woman without two you know eyes on one side of her face but yeah. he chose not to look I, absolutely I, I agree with that and, and and the reality is that i think game of thrones with uh, george r martin or uh, whatever his name was that wrote it he consciously he was a t- tv writer and he consciously wrote a book that he thought would never get made because right. he broke all the rules <laughs> yeah you know he was very very apparently very consciously going well i'm going to write something that they'll never make because it breaks all the rules because he had to abide by the rules of television in his day job (laughs) 
Um, your third choice, mm. um, which we add all the music to the Five My Life uh, Spotify playlist. It's just a sensational playlist because the algorithms would never do it. Um, you've chosen the first track of ACD's second album. Long way to the top. It triggers me because when I came to Australia, my kids were in the local primary school and they used to sing all, all the time. You probably know this. It's a long way to the shop for a sausage roll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's how I know it. But tell us um, why you chose it and your story behind it, mate. Uh, well, it's kind of this thing that's uh, it's kind of bittersweet for me in a way. It's when I was growing up in Australia and the, and the 70s and 80s are probably the most seminal years for me. Australian culture was the biggest thing in Australia. There was this period, and I just thought as a kid, you know, seeing Bon Scott with all this kind of attitude, and I knew kids at school like Bon Scott with that sort of cheeky grin and the attitude and, and the playfulness and the, and the sass and all that was my world. And, and it, it was kind of like the movies, the biggest movies were Australian, the biggest novels, the plays, the music, everything was Australian. And then it was kind of, it's been weird that I didn't realise that that kind of was non-existent before like 1970. And then it's been kind of been a, a sad thing for me to see the gradual decay of our engagement with Australianness, And it was just this weird thing on, on all these levels, like Australian-made cars suddenly were bad and, like, all this stuff just has gradually been taken away. And now there's this thing that people used to talk about that I didn't even – wasn't aware of when I was a kid because we listened to Australian music and drove Australian cars and whatever, 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 the, the idea of that chip on the shoulder about being Australian. And I teach 20-year-olds and stuff, and they know nothing about Australian cultural history and they, they want to be f storytellers and they want to be filmmakers but they probably haven't seen it, almost anything made in Australia and, and if you say oh this is really good you go oh well I think it's some really good Australian TV shows they go oh well tell me one I go I, I give them ten and they go oh I've never seen any of them well so maybe you should watch them and then you can decide whether they're any good but there's this general thing oh if it's Australian it's bad and there's a particular music video of, of ACDC on a Truck going, th truck, yeah, going yeah, yeah. through Melbourne and Bon Scott with the bagpipes and my background's mostly Scottish as well. So I have this, I used to go to Presbyterian, you know, like Sunday school and they used to do stupid sword dances and bagpipes that get dragged out every <laughs> then, which was very incongruous in an Australian summer on the, on the coast where I grew up, you know, this highland stuff. You know, and people in this sort of woolen tartan, sweating like pigs, playing bagpipes. It was very incongruous, but also kind of has an, a very Australian thing going on. But yeah, so I just remember really embracing uh, the whole Bond Scott ACDC thing. I hope it's been an ongoing influence in the tone of the work that I do because it's something I, I, I feel, I'm very fond of is that that Australian cheekiness I'm loving your stories the Australian voice and that not be something that's that's less good or a lame yeah. version of you get an Australian no. voice done well 
is is world class, just yeah. like a Belgium voice or a Canadian voice. We haven't all got to be pale imitations of, of Hollywood. There's a reason why ACDC became the biggest band in the world for a while in the early 80s. I mean, and that was mostly Malcolm and Angus Young and, and they, you know, grew up in Ashfield and, you know, and there's kind of this attitude in their, in their music. I've been doing a lot of work about um, sort of colonial times in Australia, doing a lot of research because I've quite fascinated by it and there's so many things in Australian culture about rules and breaking rules and stuff that's so innate and I think a lot of it goes back to a to, to convicts but there was always an element right back to the first fleet of being cheeky to the boss you know this weird tension between the rules and and sort of like playing the game you know it's it's i find it really interesting and i I think people enjoy that there's a question i'd love to ask you about that video you mentioned do do you know the budget for that yeah it was like three or four hundred dollars three hundred and eighty dollars hilarious it's been seen by 45 million people yeah yeah it just makes me want to ask in your career have you got any stories of absurdly stupidly small budgets that actually turned out to be the best success almost because you were only given half a bob well when i when i was at film school and in third year i ended up making this film called shopping town and i went out with a camera and some secondhand film and i filmed people's faces in a shopping center in Parramatta. And then I recorded them. I just asked them one question. I said, what makes you happy? And then it's kind of this film where it's literally all the shots we had, we just filmed it, didn't really edit it. And I just went, this is what it is. I was obsessed about saying, I'm not trying to give you this grand message. I'm just saying this is, like I said, I've been quite interested in what is Australian. And and so I put this out there in the world and it was actually really successful and it became this thing. I, I won all these awards at the Sydney Film Festival and the Adam Awards and all this stuff and it won awards overseas and I've got letters from people and then it became a thing on the school curriculum. I don't know what they were doing with it, but it was part of the school curriculum for a while and, and, and I'd get royalty checks for it and it cost like a couple of hundred bucks. And, and part of that, though, I think was it wasn't just a cynical exercise. It was very much I was really interested in anthropology, like the anthro- you know people like Ansel Adams and stuff in America, people who took anthropological images and was quite obsessed by an American director of Westerns called John Ford. And someone said, well, you can't go and film in the Painted Valley anymore and you know, like la- that landscape is kind of what your films are about. And he says, no, no, the only landscape my films are about is the landscape of a person's face. Well, I, I love it. So we're going deep. So I'm going to put my therapist's hat okay. on. So this question that you yep. ask all these people was what makes you happy? Yeah. So, David Caesar, what yeah. makes you happy? <laughs> are, are you a happy chap generally? Look, I think, I think I'm a lot happier than I was. I used to think, and, and this was my arrogant young man thing, I used to think I could fix the world by making movies. I used to think that you could fix injustice and everything else by just putting a mirror on it. And I was quite arrogant about it and very confident in my ability to do that. But I was quite angry too and I wasn't very happy. And and even though people were actually allowing me to do it, uh, and, and I guess part of that was uh, there was an audience for it too, but but still people let me do it. People weren't stopping me from doing it. Um, but, you know, it just – I was just – ranting and raving and you know like i just felt like 
I was had some sort of like battle flag that I was charging through the world and, and saving everyone from themselves or something. And I realised that everything isn't as black and white as that. Everything is much more complicated and people live in a constant state of grey. And it's kind of much harder to make sort of didactic statements about the world once you accept that the worlds and humans are complicated. But I think I'm happier in myself as a human being. And and what caused that change from angry young man to happier, grey, acknowledging person? I think it was just about accepting the fact that I I just think I, I would judge people a lot. And I think there was a point where I went, you know, if you look in the mirror, you're pretty ordinary. You know, you doing that is pretty ordinary. Even though kind of empirically that's true, what you've said, what you've attacked someone on at a dinner party. I was, I had a reputation for going to dinner parties and being this sort of like 1920s Bolshevik speaker <laughs> about class. And Who private. invited David? <laughs> well, I think people thought it was amusing for a while. And then after a couple of years, people went, oh, God. And, <laughs> and um, you know, and I thought I was, honestly thought I was educating people. And I was just like, who did I think I was that I could do that? And you know, like I would literally, some the government would do something, and I'd stomp around and be really ang- so angry about it. And th- there were things to be justified to be angry about. And and now I just like am very like okay, yep, there they go again. More so now, and not feeling any burden to fix the world because I mean it was supremely arrogant to think I could um, as well. <laughs> And it was like this thing, and I was I was at a point in my career where people going, you can make films that people really like. How about you just do that? And I'm going, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make films that change the world and, <laughs> and, and fix everyone. I did the stint on Home and Away for a while and in the middle of the pandemic, which was, I just found fantastic. And it was just this knowledge that there were 8 million people around the world watching this. And there were people who were locked up in tiny bedsits in Manchester and Sri Lanka and South America and all over the place watching this show and then watching these people frolicking on a beach and and gathering in groups and, and having sort of extended relationships with people and stuff. And it was kind of, I can't, you know, that's not fixing the world, but it's kind of like a a thing that people get pleasure from and it's a thing that gives people escape and I just really liked knowing that I was helping make that and that 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 it was a thing doing something in the world not fixing it but like a like a eating chocolate you know like uh, and that's a good thing and it goes back to your point about craft you were making it as good as it could be there's a wonderful um, story an actress I forget her name now but she played the same role on an American daytime soap for 47 years Mm. and you go well don't be so sniffy about it she did it well Mm. she wasn't pretending it was Shakespeare Mm. we're not sniffy about a nurse or a fireman Mm. she go her day job was turning up and and recording some idiotic script about her being divorced or her parents not being her parents or her I think she was killed three times in her career Uh, but she turned up Mm. on time with a smile on her dial Mm. did it well knew Mm. her lines and as you say there were whatever it was in America 43 million people who watched it every week and loved it yes and you go good on you love well done look uh, it's a thing that I've 
you know, I would regularly go, I just, I think what we did with that scene was really good. And I think we found some moments that were really true between the characters. And, and I just sort of go, this is the craft of what I do. And I've made films, you know, with big American actors and this big Australian actors and whatever else. And it's not, it is kind of not very different. I'm just so lucky to be able to do this. I just feel so privileged that I can keep doing it. Well, there you go. You've answered the question, what makes you happy? We're going to move to your fourth choice, which is the far south coast of New South Mm. Wales. But I'm going to push you. Define it better for us. Well, the far south coast, I mean, tragically, the easy way to define it is kind of where all those fires were. Right. About two years ago. And so many places down there. And Bega and Cabago right. and Maruya and Browley and Mogo and um, all these places. And that's where I grew up. I was there until I was 19. And it was kind of like, looking back on it, that world was like, you just wouldn't believe it. You know, it was like literally going surfing in the morning. And seriously, I'm not, not exaggerating. We'll go surfing in the morning and then go up into the mountains and go skiing in the afternoon and, and then go to parties. And, and it was kind of like this surfy, Aussie. It was just incredible, really. It sounds like heaven. Did you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I did. Um, and my, my family life wasn't exactly heavenly, but my mother had issues. Um, anyway, and, you know, and often I would talk about my working class background, and it very much was working class. But when you're working class, I guess my, my brother-in-law's my age, and he's from Newcastle in England, his working class background in... <laughs> In Newcastle, as they were closing down, he wasn't down, surfing in the morning, mate. <laughs> uh, closing down um, steel factories, and mine on uh, going surfing at six o'clock in the morning in this kind of idyllic physical environment and beautiful world, and I, it just was, um, yeah, I just it was so lucky, and it's something I, I I just took so took for granted when I was growing up. You know, I tried to sort of make a bit of a story about it with mullet. Have, having a relationship to that world and, and taking it for granted and then just going, oh, I'm going off to the city to be a filmmaker and I'm da-da-da, you know, literally was where my head was at when I was 19 and not appreciating how how wonderful it was. It's just fabulous hearing you talk. Would you mind talking just a little bit about the, the, the family issues? My mother always struggled with um, depression I think this is a funny story. I remember I was my mum died a few years ago, and I was talking to my we were talking to my sister about it, and and I was talking about going on holidays, you know, like and like going to live with my grandparents in Wagga in Western New South Wales for six months. And she's going, "Are you mad? That wasn't a holiday." <laughs> mum couldn't cope. That was it. Mum couldn't cope. We were sent off to various relatives, you know, and they would just put up with us until mum thought she could cope with right. us, and then we go back. That was our life. And I just thought, well, it was great the way we went round to relatives <laughs> in Melbourne and Sydney and Wagga and and up in um, the mountains, the snowy mountains and stuff, and live with relatives and stuff and for months at a time. And I'm yeah. thinking, this, you know, this is just, isn't this what normal people do? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I had no other references for that. And here I I am, you know, 50 or whatever, and my sister's going, are you crazy? (laughs) 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 Can't you remember? (laughs) Like, and I just thought, oh, okay, right. And and everything around the house was, I don't know, she was, had sort of compulsive stuff going on and other issues as well. So, 
you're always on tender hooks whether you're going to upset her. And, and where was dad in all this? Well, he's kind of a weirdo, my dad. He's kind of a hippie and he's still around. And he used to, we used to grow all our own food. And he, But he has a very bad relationship with authority. So he was often unemployed. But his relationship to that was we grow our own food. We have our own water. We have our own. We lived out in the bush. There were communes around where I lived, and my dad talked about the dirty hippies and stuff. And then in retrospect, it was like we grow our own food and then we preserve it. And, and, and I remember we used to get like a my cousins who worked at a cheese factory and we'd get all the offcuts and we used to make butter and we used to preserve all this stuff and cut up cows and put them in a freezer so we had meat and we had chickens and it was like this weird hippie <laughs> It was very, like, I, was, I thought it was just normal. I mean, this is the weird thing. And I remember going to my cousin's places, you know, when on, on our holidays, and I'd be going, turn the tap off, you know, because we had water tanks and it was always like water was really precious. And so I'd be lecturing them about how you should live, you know. You can't waste that because da-da-da, you know. You don't know when the next bit of food's coming from. Like, And it was kind of all this stuff from home. Again, it was just what what we thought was normal i guess it makes me think about the the first time i went to a friend's parents house and in my house a, a military so sent away to boarding school but mm. at home what was normal was pre-lunch mum and dad would have a drink and then to have a drink with lunch and then when the sun went over the yard arm because naval family drink before dinner drinks mm. with dinner and then drinks after dinner mm. every day seven days a mm. week Went to a mate's house, the parents, waiting to be offered a drink mm. and a meal with no alcohol. I, I, I just <laughs> couldn't. When when are they going to plonk the bottle of wine on the table? When yep. am I going to be offered a beer? Mm. I, I just like, oh, my God, that's how you live. Yeah. And, and to open the fridge, there's no booze in the fridge. Mm. There isn't a drinks cabinet. Oh, maybe it's just my family. Mm. Well, <laughs> one of the big things for me was we had always had like a toilet, like a hole in the ground toilet. My dad all these theories about human poo being the most nutritious thing in the world. So he had this toilet that used to get moved around the yard. And then I have to go out with him and dig it up. And then we plant <laughs> vegetables in it. And uh, But anyway, but when I used to go to people's houses with a flush toilet, I'd get really stressed about what the protocol of using it was. Right. And I didn't know what the brush was for. Yeah. And like if, if it didn't flush properly, I'd get in this panic and I'd just stand there for ages and keep flushing it for like yeah. – and, and if there was a stain on it, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Yeah. I didn't know what the rules were because I no one had ever shown me how to use a toilet, you know. Like, And we had this stinky thing out. This literally a tin box that you'd get moved around the yard. Wonderful. Uh, so your fifth choice, yes. which is usually my favourite, but I don't know how you can top all these stories, but it is your garden spade is your possession mm. on Five of My Life. David Caesar, tell us why you've chosen that. Well, I guess as part of my zen older age, um, I found gardening to be really... I mean, like, I've always done it. One of the things when I was a kid and get sent to my grandmother's place... She was a very avid gardener, and so a lot of my time was with her gardening. And she was very into Japanese stuff, and she was a champion Ikebana flower arranger, which was a Japanese thing, which is quite weird because my grandfather fought in the war against the Japanese. But anyway, 
<laughs> and was very racist against Japanese people. But um, so, but my grandmother was very into Japanese culture, which is very odd in Wagga Wagga. And uh, um, so I'd garden with her and she had this funny little um, nursery and that was kind of, she used to run the nursery and I used to water the plants with her and anyway, do all that. And it's and, and the gardening at home and, and growing your own food has always kind of been part of it. And a few times I've tried to get onto acreage and, and literally become self-sufficient. But I've got a suburban yard now, like a, on the central coast, and um, and I just, I got this spade. I always bought cheap spades and they had wooden handles and stuff and they'd break. And I just have this kind of really, I got this one that was, it's made out of stainless steel and it's got a steel handle and stuff. I find it the most beautiful thing. And I've got this really weird relationship to everyone, all my neighbours because they've all got lawns and they're always out mowing lawns and got leaf blowers going. And, and I've done this thing called a food forest. So my whole tiny but fairly small suburban yard with a little fibro cottage on it. And I've got like 80 fruit trees and, and I everything's covered. It's either like pumpkins or chocos or passion fruit or, or, or Jerusalem artichokes or whatever. Every, everywhere's got something growing in it or on it. So there's all these sort of look like dead lawns to me all up the street that get sort of mowed within an inch of their life. And then there's this bit of jungle. The neighbours I know have, have walked past and said, oh, is that, are you going to clean that up? I'm going, it's on purpose. It's not like. So, so this is brilliant. You, your early childhood mm. experience has, has clearly been played out in your 50s. You, yeah, you yeah. used to grow and your own, eat your own food yep. and you're growing and eating your yeah, own food. Yeah, and it's kind of this really weird thing in the pandemic. My son, my son who's only just left home actually, he's, I think he's so relieved because. Okay, for the next six weeks, we'll be eating chocos with every single meal. <laughs> the broccoli's in. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, whichever. And it was literally, that's what we're having. I, I get this really weird sense of satisfaction when I get a huge bounty of something. You know, I often get like 40 pumpkins. And then I go, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. <laughs> My idea of heaven, you know, now is I'm out in the garden with a podcast and my trusty spade, and I'm weeding or I'm putting a new sh- berry bush in or something like that. And and it just, it's just, <laughs> I have a couple of really weird exotic fruit trees. I have this one that has pe- that fruit tastes like peanut butter. <laughs> and I get like one tiny little thing on it. And it is such a thrill for me if when I see one little fruit on it. <laughs> It's wonderful. It's, it's, your, it's, your it's a real bo- thrill. Your body language is everything is, is, is lit up talking about gardening. I love it. Now, before I get to my uh, six traditional questions, yeah. um, uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, you, you mentioned your son. Yeah. Is, uh, are, are, you, are you a solo dweller or you live in a I commune? Was, or what, what's the, what's the, what's the deal well, with David? Well, it was, it had, I'd been a single parent with him for right. about six years. Um, before he left home, most of high school, and um, yeah, it was just me and him for a long time. And now it was weird because he's big; he's a lot bigger than me, which is kind of a lot of people find that hard to believe. But he's a few inches taller than me. Our little fibro cottage just felt so small, and it was kind of like well, trying to get through. Oh, you go, okay, all right. And then he moved out, and now I just feel like I'm 
rattling around this huge empty mansion, even though it's literally a tiny little cottage, and it just feels so empty. I thought, oh, well, there's not enough space, and now it just, like, I don't need all this space. What's all this for? Yes, it's very um, a very big shift in my life, him moving out. And he only moved out, like, two months ago. It was obviously on the cards at some point, but it was like, oh, okay. Oh, it's just very weird, you know, when you're suddenly by yourself for the first time in decades. Yeah. Mm. It's been a, it's been just a, an absolute joy hearing you talk, mate. Thank, well, thank you. you. And, and for, you know, respecting the format and coming in and being uh, open and honest. And gosh, I love those holidays at Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> um, the sixth question is, yep. who would you like to hear on Five My Life next and why? Well, dare I say it, and I don't know if you can get him, but like, I just think Ben Mendelssohn is such an interesting guy. Yeah. We'd be doing something when we're doing that film we were talking about before, Mullet. We'd be sort of out in this swamp and he'd be gutting Mullet. <laughs> and then he'd sort of like between takes, he had this, this I don't know, I forget which philosopher it was, he had this like huge textbook about Kierkegaard or someone <laughs> that he was studying and, he'd, and, then in, and then he'd have this conversation about this philosopher and then he'd do this sort of really weird thing where he was doing at the time, he was this um, rapper Snoop Dogg, who had these really explicit lyrics, but he used to do this incredible thing where he'd sing it like Noel Coward. <laughs> <laughs> and, it was, and you'd sort of be listening to it and it'd be quite splendid and you go, hang on a minute, what's he actually saying? And, like, and you'd actually work out the actual words he's saying. It was very funny. He's a very, um, very interesting chap. Uh, yeah, anyway, I think he'd be fantastic. David Sealer, thank you for sharing your choices on Five My Life, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Five of My Life, presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Our producer is Mandy Coolen. Theme music is thanks to Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share with a friend. And if there's someone you'd like to hear take the challenge, please message us on the Five of My Life Instagram page. I love hearing from you and appreciate all your suggestions. 